We're going to open back up to Matthew chapter 17. As we read last time from about verse 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, looking at the account of the demon that was cast out by Jesus that was unable to be removed by his disciples. We talked about that scenario and the kind of the the topic being about faith or the lack thereof um, and how the you, you see kind of a, I don't know, a natural natural progression here with the disciples and with the people that are receiving the things that the disciples are doing, this kind of idea in a, unfortunately, a very common problem with all of us that you get God to do some amazing things in our lives and let God start working in us and giving us those gifts that we were talking about this morning, those things. And eventually what will happen is, is the reflection will start turning more inward than it will towards God at some point. Okay. Um, we see this with the nation of Israel. God gets you out of trouble. You enjoy the blessings that God has given you. Wow, what miraculous and amazing things. But you just get a little bit farther down the road. You get a little bit more years under your belt. You get a little bit more, you know, kind of surrounded with the blessings of God and those things. And you'll start taking them for granted. And then eventually you'll take them as part of you and not as the gift of God that they are. Um, God even kind of prophesied this in telling Moses when he was you know, laying out Deuteronomy, he said, look, you're going to get into the land that I promise you. It's going to happen. You're going to be there in a land that flows with milk and honey and vineyards and things that you didn't plant and all this stuff. And you're going to get so cozy in what I have given you that you will eventually forget me and then rebel against me and worship the very gods that you know to be idolatrous and false. I mean, he tells Moses that right off the bat. Deuteronomy, we hadn't even stepped foot in the promised land. We know that because Moses led them to the promised land, but Joshua, Joshua led them into the promised land, right? So we hadn't even gotten there yet. And Moses is saying, this is what's going to happen. So you, you see this kind of natural spiral, and we saw that with the disciples. The disciples here have been blessed with these amazing gifts of God. God is allowing them to do things like cast out demons and take up serpents and all these amazing and crazy, fantastic things. And you can almost see in this situation with the demon here that they were going, man, the the stuff I've been doing is not working. You know, last time I used oil, it didn't work this time. Well, maybe we need to use the left hand versus the right, or maybe we need to present it. No. Jesus comes back and says, in all honesty, even though he speaks about the prayer and fasting, that wasn't like the key ingredient they were missing. What they were missing was what praying and fasting is supposed to bring about, which is a humbleness and a, reconcil- a recognition that you are not the source of sovereignty. You are not the source of power. You are not the source of healing. You are merely an instrument in God's hands. The reason you couldn't cast out these demons was either one, because God didn't want you to, Or because you started thinking it was you doing it and not God. And so God wasn't present in the situation. So Jesus comes along and heals him and casts out the demon. I thought it was important for us to recognize that those two went together. It wasn't just that he cast out the demon. It says that he was healed. Okay. And he was healed from the physical manifestations of that spiritual problem he had. Going forward from there. 
In verse 22, he says, And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Now, that's all I'm going to talk about today. Because I found it really interesting. There are three different occasions that Christ makes mention to his disciples that he is going to the cross to die. Okay? Um, we've already read one of those back in chapter 16, but I just find it kind of profound that Jesus feels like he needs to say it more than once. We've already had this encounter. I mean, if you're going by just the, the book of Matthew, it was just a few verses ago, Jesus, you just told us this. Remember Peter stood up and said, far be it from you, Lord, you know, we'll never let this happen. I'll die, you know, in your stead and all this. And that's when Jesus says, This has to happen. Get behind me, Satan. You're interfering with things you don't know about. Your desire to see me not die is actually a satanic desire because my death is what secures your life. So this is important. So important that he mentions it more than once. I don't think the disciples had forgotten. But I do think there's a lot of interesting depth to this that I want to look at him. It's just kind of come together in the last few weeks as I've been reading it and kind of considering it that there's obviously a point that Jesus is supposed to be making to us here and that we need to be grabbing. Okay, Besides the theological understanding that the Messiah came to die and be raised again, there's something more to this. And I kind of, as I was looking at him in the synoptic, synoptic gospels, I kind of came together with this idea. So... How many of us would say that we have suffered through something in our lifetime? How many of us would say we had suffered through something in our lifetime? If you haven't yet, it's reasonable to assume that at some point you will, right? I mean, we look at this and we talked about this briefly on Wednesday night about our perception of the Advent. You know, as a child... You know, you view it completely differently than as an adult. As a young adult, you view it differently as a more senior adult, okay? Um, Your perception on those things are often filtered through your life experiences. When you have been living the life of, you know, Xbox in school and that's about it, you don't have a lot of real depth to tie into the advent you have a yeah i'm okay you know i believe in jesus i'm looking forward to heaven sounds great but not right now so i got stuff to do you know we got prom coming up next week we've got life ahead of us hadn't gotten married yet would like to experience i mean all these things that we filter through once you start getting into life and you start your your eyes are opened to the realities of the suffering and the trials and things that go on in this world you start kind of evolving into the biblical view of this world You know, Abraham, when he first set out, didn't have a bad life. Abraham set out and was actually leaving some good things. I mean, God's going, man, I got this land for you, and and this is where I'm going to give it to you forever. And Abraham's like, I mean, I kind of already got that, God. Like, I've got my land, I've got my wife, I've got my family, I've got inheritance. I'm a powerful man. But as he traveled... On his journey, as he went through the years of sorrow and temptations and trials and suffering and the things that he encountered on the way, all of a sudden his perception at death is completely different than where it was when he first set out. That's just kind of the road that we travel. So if we have already suffered, if we assume we are going to suffer, we understand the reality that this world is full of suffering, right? 
No matter how great our Instagram or Facebook posts may be, our world is actually a world filled with suffering. In fact, there is maybe the most common experience of man since man walked the earth is that suffering is afflicting us. Suffering in some point, some form, some fashion. The, the, the condemnation of God back in the Garden of Eden said, because of what you have done, there will be animosity. The earth itself will bring forth briars and that beautiful job I had given you before where you were to go till the land and the garden and man, it was going to be great and things just blossomed and bloomed and everything was awesome. Now you're going to still till that land, but you're going to till it with briars and thorns and hard labor. And by the sweat of your brow, you're going to dig the earth and ultimately die and fall back in it. I mean, that's about his, he gets about as realistic as you could possibly get, as bleak as you could possibly get, saying it is by suffering that you're going to endure this world because of the fall. So suffering is a common human experience, no matter which end of the spectrum you lie on. Now, unfortunately, we view suffering a lot of times through the lens of kind of cause and effect, meaning basically if you're suffering, it's because you caused it, okay? That's kind of how we view it. That's how the secular point of view views it, where you're suffering these things, obviously, because of poor planning, poor logistics, whatever it may be, because ultimately you are the captains of your own destiny. So obviously, if things aren't going right, you have been steering this ship into the rocks, So that's the secular point of view of it. Even from the religious point of view, though, we can sometimes fall into a more legalistic cause and effect mentality. You were suffering because you were sinful. You were suffering because you brought this upon yourself due to an action such as drinking, smoking, adultery, cussing, whatever it may be. And whereas there are truths to that in a sense that, you know, we talk about the wages of sin being death. And that the way of man leads to death. And so there's obviously consequences for our sins. And sinful actions do bring about the judgment and the wrath of God. And obviously there can be suffering that goes on because of that. We're not making that statement that there is not sometimes a cause to your suffering that is directly related to your stupid actions. Okay. But there's also what I call the friends of Job phenomenon. Which is Job's friends in dealing with Job were trying to impress upon Job. Job... You're in this situation because you screwed up somewhere. You need to figure that out. Because once you figure that out and you make that right, oh, everything's going to be going back to where it should be. Things are great because, as we all know, righteous people don't suffer, right? That's the friends of Job phenomenon. If you're suffering, it's because you've done something wrong. Fix what you've done wrong, you won't suffer anymore. Unfortunately, the friends of Job phenomenon has transcended all time, okay? We still have friends of Job phenomenons that go on today. If you're in a strait, if you're having problems, if life is going not the way you anticipated, it's probably you're suffering because you have done something wrong. If you'll just get right with God, come back to church more, you know, pray more on a Wednesday night, do the Advent guide, whatever it may be, will get you something that you will have a life of health, wealth, and prosperity and shall never encounter any problems here. So we notice that no less than three occasions, Christ makes mention of his impending suffering says i'm going there i'm going i'm going to suffer at the hands of men they're going to take me they're going to kill me but 
I will be resurrected. I think it's interesting that every one of those, and maybe, you know, it's just the way that it's written, but you kind of get the sense every time that they start getting sorrowful about his death. And it's not they completely miss the fact that he says, hey, I'm going to be resurrected, guys. It's not the end. I'm telling you, this is not the end. It's going to happen, but it's not the end. But every time they're like, no, you can't die. I'm going to be resurrected. I know, but you can't die. I'm going to be resurrected. I'm not dying, dying. I'm not going away forever. I'm going to be resurrected. Yeah, but you can't die, Jesus. If you die, then what will happen? How can you suffer? You're the king. How can you suffer? You're the Messiah. How can you suffer? You're the conqueror. You only suffer when you do something wrong. You don't do things wrong, Jesus, right? I mean, how can you suffer? So obviously, if something's worth saying, it's worth saying more than once. And Jesus does that. Makes a mention of it in three different gospels on no less than three different occasions. I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer. I'm going there to suffer. It is interesting that the first time we saw this over in Matthew chapter 16 is kind of hedged between passages on Jesus's true identity. Who do you say I am? Who do men say I am? Who do you say I am, Peter? And also the call to discipleship. Take up your cross. Follow me. Okay. That's where that first section we see in Matthew 16. That's where it's hedged in. In between there he says. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. The Gentiles and the Jews. The leaders of all this. They're all going to take me and kill me. But I will be raised again. Here in this point of scripture. He kind of sandwiches it again. A little bit in between. A section on his true identity. And a section on discipleship. The first being that what we read about a couple of weeks ago on the transfiguration, showing Peter and and the others the 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 picture of his iconic glory. I gave you my name and you recognize me as the son of God. I'm going to show you what son of God looks like. He pulled the veil off. Then as you go into chapter 18 of Matthew, he talks about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And he makes the point of the one who humbles themselves as a little child. The same is great in the kingdom of heaven. And that whole section of scripture is speaking of the sacrificial, God-honoring humbleness and humility that is required as an entry point into the kingdom. He says that is how you are characterized as a servant, as a obedient follower of me is that you will actually humble yourself as a child the greatest in the kingdom will be the least the least in the kingdom will be exalted to the greatest over and over again we see that in scripture so on these two separate occasions matthew 16 matthew 17 you have identity of christ you have christ's ultimate end and subsequent resurrection and then our obedience factor okay in 16 you had it on who do you say i am I'm going to die in Jerusalem. Here is take up your cross and follow after me. In chapter 17 here, it's here's the transfiguration. Here's what I look like with my veil off kind of a deal. Here is I'm going one verse. I'm going to die. And then let me tell you about how you are to serve and obey me in your walk here in this life. So again, could be completely circumstantial maybe god just thought it was a great way to organize this chapter okay but i think it's just it's very telling it tells the story over and over and over again of every aspect of jesus 
You know, we talked about this last time when we were looking at chapter 16. You can get really heavy on the theology of the identity of Christ. You can get really heavy on the theology of, I know he's going to, he had to die as the Savior and all the mathematics and scientific things that had to happen for that to happen so that he could ultimately fulfill the promise. And then you can drop off the obedience factor and we're missing one of the legs of the stool. You could drop off the first part about who his identity was, but then really believe in this whole death, burial, and resurrection thing. And yeah, I'm really cool with obedience, but if you've lost the identity of who Christ is, you've lost one of the legs of the stool. It's not going to stand up. They're all three required, okay? And that's what we went over and over again with chapter 16. Well, here, talking about the suffering, again, they tie so closely together Because I'm going to go ahead and bust the bubble for you. The one thing that's going to stand in your way of obedience is suffering. Is thinking that your suffering is a causal and effect of something you're doing wrong. Well, if following Christ is going to lead this way, I was better off when I wasn't following Christ. If I can follow Christ and be no better off than the rest of the world, I still have the same problems. I still have the same struggles. I still have the same addictions. I still have the same loss. Well, then what in the point? Why am I doing this? Why am I, as, as it would be said, why am I denying myself all the fun that I could have out there if I'm going to suffer the same way? Might as well just eat, drink, and be happy because you know what? Tomorrow everybody's going to die. What's really, what am I gaining from this? So that's why all three of these were so important. It's important to know who we are suffering for. It's important to know that we are going to suffer and that obedience is expected either way. So we're going to dive into that a little bit. But there was an important point that I don't know if I grabbed it last time when we talked about the first occurrence of him mentioning this. But if you look in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, verses 21 and 22... He tells them, you know, don't say anything about me being the son of man. You know, don't mention my true identity to anybody. And then in verse 22, he says, saying that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be slain and be raised on the third day. The key word in that that I think is so telling is that it says he must suffer. Must. Okay. Not possibly, not Maybe, hey, it could happen. No, I'm going there with intention and purpose. It must be so. Another way of saying that is it is necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and to be rejected of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and to be killed and to be raised again on the third day. All three of the Gospels, the synoptic Gospels as we talk about, refer to this necessity The necessity of it, which is probably why it was necessary for him to say it more than once. This is not just going to happen. It is necessary that I suffer. It is necessary that I suffer. So Jesus, in his accounting of his future suffering, he didn't propose this as if it was a possibility or a choice of sorts. Okay. He didn't say, well, I might suffer. I might be killed. It's highly likely that they'll take me and kill me. No, he said it is on purpose. It is with necessity. 
it is, it is necessary that I go and suffer. So two questions that you might get from this. Number one being, why would Jesus repeat this three times? That's always a good one. But also, why, and probably more important, why was it necessary for Jesus to suffer at all? So let's answer that last question first. The necessity of suffering, okay? Not the possibility or the reality of it, but the necessity of it. The necessity of suffering is for you, me, just as it was for Christ, okay? And we're going to look at why. We do have to dispel that myth, though, that it is cause and effect. It's something you did wrong that caused your suffering all the time, okay? Because as we notice with Jesus' statement, he says it's necessary that the Son of Man would suffer. He didn't say it was accidental, as we said. He didn't say it was the cause of some action that was erroneous on his part. Well, it's going to happen. I'm going to suffer because you know what? I got up in Jerusalem and I goofed up. I goofed up. I messed up. You know, Moses didn't go into the promised land because he goofed. All right. In a lack of faith moment, he did something God told him not to do. And God said, look, you just it's not going to happen. So he could come up to the edge of the shore and look over into the land of Canaan and go, well, I know why I'm on this side. My suffering in that way, that's, it's, that's on me. Well, Jesus, that wasn't Jesus' statement. So right off the bat, we have to understand that Jesus' purposeful suffering was not a plan that went wrong, but actually a plan that went very, very right. In fact, when we read from Isaiah chapter 53, which is some of our favorite sections of Scripture talking about Jesus... In Isaiah chapter 53, and this again, this ties with what we do at Advent, talking about the first coming of Jesus and who he was and what he was to become. When you look from verse 3 to 5, it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, that he was smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Does anything in there sound accidental? That somehow Jesus was thinking that this was going to go another way, and then, oops, here we go. I got all this baggage put on me. I didn't intend for this to happen this way. No, the, the prophecy of Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus was on the scene was testifying that his whole purpose in coming was to suffer the stripes and the bruises and the, the I'm not going to say the smittenness of God because I don't know if that's even a word, but basically the anger and the what was perceived as kind of the forsaking of God. And he did it all for us. And the prophecy was saying he did it all for us on purpose. I think that's something we all know and agree, right? We know that Jesus came on purpose. He came to do what he did on purpose. This was a preordained, pre-thought out purpose that's been in plan for the whole creation time. 
Now, you obviously can see some cause and effect in this that Jesus, obviously, as we know, and we talk about Jesus bore our sins. So, yes, he is being punished in that way. He is dying for something. There is a cause of this. Okay. It wasn't like the Trinity got together and said, hey, we have nothing else better to do. Why don't you inhabit a human and then we'll go and we'll do all this thing. No, that's not why he was doing it. There was obviously background and reason and cause of great and high price for why he did all this. So, yes, you can argue there's kind of a cause and effect, but it is very true that Jesus suffered because of our sins, our rebellion, our transgressions, but that this was not accidental and it was not a failure. And that's what I think the the disciples here are catching the first half of this statement, and that's what they are seeing. Jesus, if you die then this is all gone. This is a failure. How can the Savior die? If he dies, we've lost. The grave is victorious if you die. You have failed. You're supposed to conquer. You're supposed to exceed expectations. You're supposed to overcome. That's what victory looks like. But this was not by accident. Rather, he suffered on purpose, and that purpose was to achieve our salvation. And then, obviously, we know he was resurrected. The grave didn't win. Death didn't reign victorious. Jesus smacked death on the face as he's walking out of the tomb. Say, yeah, and I'll see you later. I'm going to take care of you in just a little while, too. Let all things pan out. You're going to go the way of the grave, too. But there's another way that if you kind of reword that Isaiah 53 section, it could read like this. He chose to be despised and rejected of men. He chose to be a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. We chose to hide our faces from him and we chose to give him no esteem. He chose to bear our griefs and to carry our sorrows. We chose to view him as punished by God. Again, Following with the friends of Job phenomenon, obviously, if he is suffering, it must be because he is doing something wrong. And God is punishing him for it. He chose to be wounded for our transgressions. He chose to be bruised for our iniquities. He chose to take our chastisement upon him for our peace. And he chose to take our stripes so that we might be healed. In short, he chose to suffer for us. He chose to suffer on purpose to bring about an expected end. And he says it was necessary. Well, I think all of us view that as very necessary, right? (laughs) We're like, please let that be necessary. Because if it wasn't, then everything that he did was for nothing. And here we go. We know where we're headed. Thankfully, we're... Viewing him through the lens post-resurrection. And the immense amount of sacrifice he gave to suffer for us. Again, we've talked about this before and, and, and I've kind of jokingly used the SEAL Team 6 reference. You know, if you think about it, there was no essential reason why he had to suffer. Okay. Think about it like this. The law, nowhere in the law does it say if you're going to make a sacrifice, you got to make it suffer before it really gets done in. In fact, a lot of the 
kind of the kosher, as that word is used, the kosher way of killing these animals in the Old Testament. There was a way God said that you did it, and it was specific, and it was because it wasn't supposed to be a suffering thing, okay? You weren't supposed to, like, strangle them and drag them through town before you brought them into the temple. In fact, it was supposed to be done. I was getting really horrific and graphic, but, I mean, that's to give the point. It was a clean-cut, quick deal and go to the altar. There wasn't supposed to be a lot of suffering. This wasn't animal torment, It wasn't ring them out really good and let's torture them really well because God is some kind of sadistic, masochistic God that loves to see things suffer before he gets that last ounce of joy out of them. That's not what this was. So based on the law and the atonement law, it wasn't like Jesus had to suffer. Jesus didn't have to come down here and endure 33 years of suffering Suffering with the people, casting doubts about him, suffering with the blasphemous words said about him, suffering with being spit at, kicked on, run out of town, threatened to be beaten to death, all while he's going, guys, you know, I created all of you. You know, you're only existing because I'm allowing your molecules to continue to exist in the way that they are existing. You know that all I got to do is just like let my hand off the wheel and watch, you know, comets blast this world apart. I mean, I'm the one keeping all this going on. And here you are cursing me, saying I'm a drunkard and spitting at me and pulling my hair out and jamming thorns into my head. For a lesser man, (laughs) it would not have gone that way. If one of us was in those shoes with that power, I'm just saying be a completely different story. I mean, God even kind of hints at that a couple of different times in Scripture. I mean, he goes to Noah and says, Noah, A to you, rest of the world, you're done. Okay? He then goes forward to Abraham and says, you know what? I'm really tired of it. Let's get you to... And then he goes forward to Moses and says, Moses, you know what? I know I just saved these people. It's been 400 years of crying and begging and pleading, but y'all are getting on my nerves. I'm about to wipe every one of them out. And we'll just start over with you, Moses. You seem like you could be pretty cool. You just see this moment where if Jesus wanted to, all it would take was not even an ounce of effort, (laughs) but he didn't. Instead, it says he purposefully suffered for you and me. So what does the gospel say about this? The gospels overall, the New Testament overall, what does it say about the necessity of suffering well, in Acts chapters 3, 7, and 26, I know this is going to be a lot of scriptures, but Acts chapters 3, 7, and 26 all speak of the expectation of Christ's sufferings and preaching in the New Testament church as an essential component of the gospel. When he is talking about in, in the new churches, wherever they're going, the apostles as they're going forward, Peter preaching, you know, in chapter 3 and in other places in chapter 7 and 26. Um, with Paul before Agrippa, all these places where they're at, they all bring up the suffering of Christ. They almost reiterate what Christ said, I'm going to suffer, die, and be resurrected. And every one of these accounts, in general, what the apostles are preaching are, not just the death, not just the resurrection, and not just his identity and therefore your obedience, but it all, every single one of them, highlight it with the phrase, he came and suffered and died and was raised again. Every single one of them. So why would you bring that up? I mean, usually if you're going to give a historical context, we always eliminate the ugly stuff, Right. Okay, let's teach American history, but let's really just kind of slide as much as we can past that whole slavery thing and get past that to something a little bit greater, like World War II and the Great Generation and all this. 
any part of a country's identity, man, they want to slide past the ugly stuff. We'll mention it, honorable mention, maybe a good footnote, but we're not going to get into the details because we don't want to talk about the details. The details are scary. The details are nasty. The details show us what we really were and how we went through this and all the things that we experienced. Well, with the apostles and what a lot of times testifies the, if we can use the word, historicity of the gospel accounts is that they never, they never shy away from the ugly details. I mean, even Peter himself will like come up and be like, look, guys, <laughs> um, I was kind of a goofball on occasions. You know, I did some things. I denied the Lord three times. You know, if Peter was writing his autobiography, probably going to leave some of that detail out if it was just on Peter. OK, you know, it's going to skip. It's going to be like, yeah, he said, follow me. And I said, sure. And then I'm preaching on Pentecost and we just leave all the other stuff out. If you're going to look at other apostles, maybe Matthew, Levi, you know, we're going to talk about him being a tax collector. No, no, no. We're going to go right past that. We're going to go right to the point where Levi is a dedicated apostle of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I used to extort my brothers and sisters of the Jews, but we're going to leave that part out. Levi, I'm a great guy. Look at how I am. You know, that's how we as natural humans do. But here with the authenticity of the gospel, they don't they don't shy away from it. And here in these cases... You see them bring it up not as a sidebar footnote, but actually as one of the key components. Jesus's whole life summed up as he suffered and he died and he was raised again. Hebrews chapter 2, for it was fitting for him, it became him, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their, their salvation perfect through sufferings. Hebrews 5, uh, verse 8, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Philippians 1.29, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 3 and 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Every single one of those highlights the sufferings of Jesus as an essential, not a footnote, but an essential portion of not only his existence here, but also our discipleship with him, our life reflecting his sufferings. We're all about a lot of times talking about his life and talking about emulating his life and how loving and compassionate and merciful he was. And yes, and amen. But every one of the gospel accounts mentioned back to his sufferings that we emulate. Yes, his mercy and his compassion, and his love, but we're also supposed to emulate his sufferings. That's not usually the fun theme we want to talk about. That's not the things that we want to emulate. Let me talk about how I can be more patient in a situation, not how I can suffer more. But a lot of the gospel, a lot of the New Testament writers, a lot of the apostles, that was kind of the highlight of their life. Peter, actually, when he was kind of beaten up and thrown out of the synagogue, was saying, man, I'm just excited that I got to suffer just like Jesus did. That's usually not on our purview. So the sufferings were essential to everything they were a central theme to everything, and the future church preached about it. And it wasn't just his life, his miracles, his virgin birth, as we talk about around Christmas time, his resurrection, his death. It was his sufferings that took the central 
portion of his message. And again, like he said, we might be saying, why on earth did he have to suffer? Why was that necessary? The law does not prescribe that. The law does not say it was necessary that he had to suffer for us. He could again do the Seals Team 6 thing, drop in at the right age. I mean, he is God. He did not have to come, you know, and incarnate himself as a child and grow up that way. All right. Technically, if you're talking about from a just a big picture point of view, God could drop himself in here at 33 years of age, fulfilling exactly what he needed to fulfill, walk right up to the cross, throw himself on it, die, resurrect himself. I mean, he could just do all that. He's God. He can make the sacrificial atonement. He provided a ram and a thicket over there for Abraham. He can do a lot of stuff. So we've come back to this over and over again, especially when we were going through the book of Hebrews, that he said it was necessary for a reason. It wasn't just happenstance. He didn't come and go through all this because he just thought it would be a cool ride one day. Hey, never been a baby. Let's see how that was. Let me experience that. Because I think of all the ages you're going to experience, let's find a better one to experience. Okay. Being incapacitated, unable to take care of yourself and, you know, doing what baby do all the time. You kind of go, that's not the choicest point of life. Pick me up somewhere else. Give me some freedom, financial independence. Let me have, you know, let me do some fun stuff. Let me have the good life. But he didn't just come and go through all this just for happenstance. He came through it for a reason. And I think there's an interesting tie in. With this specifically related to the suffering aspect that I don't think I've maybe I've called in fullness before. Okay, so we're going to kind of use that Isaiah verse and other verses like it. We're going to think about it in this way. Okay, so when Jesus came and lived the life and it says that he suffered for our sakes. And, you know, we read Hebrews about how he was acquainted with our sufferings. And we read Philippians about he was perfected through our sufferings. And all these things that he was, that it seems like suffering was essential for him. You'd say, again, well, why did he have to do that? What did he being God have to learn? How did he learn obedience? How was he perfected, matured, grow? I mean, he's God. Really, you cannot, when you're infinite, there's no growing you can do. You don't have any boundaries to grow outside of. When you're all knowing, there's nothing you're learning. There's no experience. You know, that's, that's kind of what you're getting at with this with Jesus. Why was this necessary? You know, Jesus in the New Testament, and especially in Hebrews and other places, he will be referred to as the second Adam, right? There's that kind of phrase around him. He is the second Adam. We know who the first Adam was. We know what his life led to. Adam, number one, through his disobedience, brought suffering into the world. Suffering was brought about because of his disobedience. And in Romans, you'll read all about how Adam messed this up and Jesus is the second Adam is how he's making it right. And he makes it right in this way and that way and so forth. Well, Adam is the one that started suffering as the shared human experience. The first Adam brought it in. If Christ is to embody the Adamic race, which is what he did. That's how he atoned for us in that way. 
That's how he sacrificed for us in that way. He came as a human. He did not come as just God. He came as 100% God, 100% man. He incarnated himself in the form of a human. In fact, it says in Hebrews that he made himself lower than the angels. That's us, by the way, for the suffering of death. So we have this purposeful, he's coming to be one of us in that way, okay? And since Adam's transgressions, suffering has been the key element of human existence that has transcended all ages. So it's only fitting that Jesus, being the second Adam, coming to fix all the things that Adam messed up in the first place, and embody everything that we are, would also experience suffering like us. Now, no, that... that let that sink in just for a second. Because, you know, we read things like Romans and we read about the second Adam stuff and it kind of gets into this whole, oh, yeah, that's one of those doctrinal theological things and all this stuff. But the phrase being second Adam means he's one of us in that way. Shared human experiences in that way. He didn't coast through life for 33 and a half years untouched by the things that we go through. In fact... In the book of Hebrews, as we were reading, and as we've read over and over again from chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, it'll say, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, that would be us, the children are partakers of the Adamic race, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage for verily he took not on him the nature of angels but he took on him the seed of abraham again an adamic race and this is the clincher wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like to his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or to help comfort and support them that are tempted and suffer. So he says the whole purpose of him coming into this world and enduring sufferings and why his suffering is such an essential point that is mentioned over and over and over again in the New Testament is because he says the suffering is the thing that makes him so like us. The suffering is the thing that makes him linked with us in this way. The suffering is the thing that you can look back and go... I can get through it because Jesus got through it. And it's not that Jesus got through it because he was just God incarnate. It was because he was man. He suffered like I will suffer. In fact, he tells them that in the, in the Gospels, he says, you're going to face tribulations. He says, in fact, if you face them, you actually should be a little bit happy about them because the people of this world don't suffer like we do. The world loves his own people, right? If you are suffering in these ways, you're suffering because you're one of my people. I suffered at the hands of all these religious elites and these Gentile leaders. If you're suffering because of that, just count yourself lucky. That should be something to remind you, you ain't of this world. So he says, don't be discouraged by that. In fact, he says, you can have joy because, yes, I suffered, but I overcame the world. 
And I promise that I'm going to be right there with you. And in fact, I'm a more faithful, engaging, and able high priest. And don't give me any kind of how that is even possible. But I am a more engaging and able intercessor friend for you because I know exactly what you're going through. I've suffered in the same way you have suffered and will suffer. There is no amount of suffering or side effects or problems or issues or anything that we come up against in this world that we can go up and go, yeah, but Jesus, you just don't know what I've been through because Jesus said, yes, I do. In fact, on purpose, I know what you've been through. I've been through it. I chose to come down here and go through it. I chose to come suffer for you so that you in your suffering can say, Jesus is the only one that knows what I'm going through. You can walk around this church, walk around this community, walk around this world. You might find some people who have similar battles and similar things, but you only know one person and that's Jesus Christ who knows it all and has been through it all. And is also a much, much, much better comforter. We find a lot of the friends of Job in this world. That's not knocking them. They're just coming from where they were coming from. And to knock them would be like saying that we're not guilty of that exact same thing. But we are. And that's what happens. You get out here and you go to comforters and you say, hey, I'm going through this problem. I'm suffering with this issue. And they say, man, I don't know anything about it. But it sounds like you need to get yourself right with the Lord. Because if you just get yourself right with the Lord, all this stuff will go away. And Jesus is going, I was pretty good with the Lord, by the way. I had a pretty good relationship with him. You know, this whole eternal father son thing, never been separated, never been out of his presence. We've had a really good ride up until this point. So, I mean, Jesus had all reasons to say he was as right as you can get with the Lord and he suffered. And he suffered in two ways. It'll be really quick about you suffer from persecutions and you suffer in temptations. And again, both of those go on different levels. But the suffering for persecutions for righteousness, I think that's one that we all think about. When you say when you're suffering, you know, when you suffer as a follower of Christ, that's kind of what you get at. Oh, you're suffering persecutions is what it is. You know, a lot of times I really, really, really caution us as Americans when we kind of make our sufferings and persecutions for righteousness sake sound like there's something really big. Okay. All right. So, I mean, you know, it gets ridiculous sometimes when we throw up things like, oh, we're just not allowed to pray in school, which I've never had anybody come and be able to listen into your head and figure out if you're praying or not. Okay. If you're praying on the street corner at school, I've got a verse for that. Okay. Um, But when you come up with this idea of, oh, we're suffering persecutions because we can't pray in school, we're suffering persecutions because some religious movie didn't get published. I mean, that's not suffering. When your head's getting chopped off, come call me. Not literally, but you can come call me. When we're rounded up and bushled up and thrown in the back. I mean, when that's what we're going through, then we can speak about sufferings. When we're being beaten and kicked out of synagogues, then we can talk about that. But we have to be careful. We like to feel like we're partakers in this and try to find whatever little hokey pokey way in America we're somehow suffering and denying the fact and denying the obvious reality that God has blessed us to be in a nation that that's not the case. So, yeah, there are cases where you suffer, you know, retribution for whatever at your work, at your school or whatever, for living a life is different than everybody else's. I get that. And I'm not trying to discredit that wholeheartedly. But there's also, again, we have to open our eyes and realize that there's a lot of other people who are truly suffering persecutions. But you can look at multiple different verses from Second Timothy. 
that all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall surf, suffer persecution. I mean, that's not all. That's not the verse that you. I, I have not seen that one written on any you know nice distressed wood placards in anybody's house. I haven't seen it on any coffee mugs. That all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. They like you know Philippians four thirteen. We like I can do all things through Christ. Okay. Apparently playing football and all sorts of stuff. I can do all things through Christ, but you're all going to suffer if you follow Christ. That's not on any cups I have seen yet. Maybe I just haven't Googled it. First Peter will talk about because that Christ suffered, you will also suffer. That he was leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps. Those things of suffering for a righteous sake. And Christ and Peter and others will say, if you're suffering for a righteous sake, it's a good thing. If you're suffering for an unrighteous sake, you're suffering for a stupid reason. Okay? And you need to check yourself. But the suffering for persecution, suffering for righteous sake, being persecuted because we hold beliefs about Jesus Christ, that we walk differently in following Jesus Christ, and that if we follow Jesus Christ, we are going to suffer persecutions at some point, shape, form, or fashion, is a biblical reality. Jesus did it. We will end up doing it. But lastly, the thing that I think that also is a part of it that we don't always think about with Christ, but that is most certainly... Intrinsic in his identity is his suffering in temptation. You say, oh, well, but Christ is God. And I mean, what really was he tempted? He was tempted in every way. In every way he was tempted, yet blameless. The crazy thing wasn't that he was tempted. The crazy thing was that he was blameless in it all. And that's not too astronomical crazy. That's not out of control crazy. That somehow it's impossible to achieve. In fact, Christ would say, I've done it. You go do it. He says, I have been blameless in this. I'm calling you to be blameless in this. If I can face and suffer temptations, you can face and suffer temptations. And you don't have to give in to them. So these attacks and things that we suffer and the temptations that we suffer with yes they come from a lot of different aspects and a lot of different places but they're all reality i mean you look at how jesus suffered in the wilderness through temptation in fact again another place where it says he purposefully went up to the wilderness to suffer temptation purposefully did that didn't decide he was going to go take a siesta out in the desert. He went out there on purpose, being led by the Holy Spirit for the whole reason of being tempted by the devil while he had been fasting for 40 days. His temptations in those places were temptations that, you know, sometimes we'd go, well, nobody's whisked me up to the top of the synagogue and shown me all the world, said you could have all this. Nobody's done that, but, oh, they have done it in so many ways. Well, nobody has threatened me with food in this way and said, oh, you're hungry. We'll have this. Oh, but they have in so many ways. Yes, those temptations were specific at those times with Jesus. But man, they testify to a just a a completely human experience that we all go through. And what Christ would tell us, what the apostles would tell us is that we shouldn't think that it's strange those things are happening in fact peter would use the words think it not strange concerning the fiery trial the temptation the suffering which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you but rejoice in as much as ye are partakers of christ's sufferings that when his glory shall be revealed 
you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Peter will also say that we should humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is First Peter chapter 5, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you, and that we should be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. You say, oh, those are familiar verses. Whom... We are to resist steadfastly in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, will make you perfect, established, strengthened, and settled. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I mean, he gives this point of view that we are going to endure this. In fact, in many cases, he says, you most certainly are going to go through it. And God is the one who we rely on and are steadfast in the face. I mean, in the faith and we stand up in the face of the devil in all these temptations. And then once you've suffered through them, God is, will make you stable, steadfast, grow you. So, I mean, nowhere is it, is it ever presented in the Bible that somehow suffering is, you know, outside of what God wants for us. And that, you know, if, if God is a loving God, we'll never have any problems. And, and if you're going through problems, and this is something God's either done wrong or you've done wrong. In fact, Peter's kind of given the idea that we're going to need to suffer because it makes us better. And man, that's hard to grasp. That we need to suffer because it makes us better. You know, God will often use the, the, the imagery of a refining fire, especially if you've been reading through your, your Advent stuff and you've gone through Jeremiah. I mean, he'll talk about all sorts. Of, I'm burning off some dross. We're going to get rid of some stuff. Well, you know, like to get the dross off the gold, you have to melt it. It doesn't just like come off with a feather duster okay uh he doesn't say hey i'm gonna get you cleaned up with this night we're gonna use a loofah and a spa experience no he says i'm going to melt you down scrape off the bad stuff and reform you in another area i think it's in isaiah or ezekiel he'll talk about it being like a fuller's soap okay that he's going to make you whiter than snow well you know what he's referring to there he's referring to the action of lime Basically, the idea of bleaching you out, okay? I don't know if you ever, any of y'all have ever been burned up by bleach, but again, not a fun experience. Bleach has to go through that chemical reaction to basically burn off all the bad stuff. It's not an easy experience, but it is a necessary experience. Otherwise, we have a God who does not care enough about us do we catch that? Yeah. If we were prevented from suffering, God actually would be an uncaring God who didn't really, doesn't really want us to grow, doesn't really want us to lose some of those bad things that are on us. He uses that to refine us. So we would close with this verse out of Psalms 126. 
when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like those who were in a dream. Now, this is the idea of Israel has gone through their refining fire. They have been in captivity. Okay, they have been locked up. This is the idea that's going to be kind of reiterated with this. Now, obviously, it hadn't happened yet, but that's the idea behind this. When the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that were in a dream. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goes forth and weeps, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And say so that's a little bit of some fancy, beautiful, poetic language. But what what is being expressed in that is that the endurance of the weeping, the endurance of the sorrow, the endurance of the captivity, the endurance of the sufferings ultimately ends when God brings us around again. And those who were once in mourning and sorrow and struggles and not able to get through it come out bearing the fruit of that seed, come out bearing the benefits and the blessings of God, come out on the other side with mouths filled with laughter and joy and happiness. So the idea is, yes, as other places will say, that the sufferings, the sorrows last for the nighttime. But joy comes in the morning. So there's a necessity for us to suffer. So if we're in this room today and we're going, man, I'm really suffering right now and I don't know why. Well, I can't give you a great answer as to why. Okay. That's something that sometimes you have to search your own heart and figure out. And, you know, it might be that you've done some things that you don't need to be doing and you're suffering for an unrighteous sake versus a righteous sake. But there's also the side of it that we don't lose hope in those anguish suffering times because actually they're things that god uses over and over again they're things that god uses to grow us say well man why am i still coming back to the same problem the same temptation the same trial why does it continue to vex me over and over and over and over again why like paul can this thorn just go away and me be done and all i can say is that god's answer to the paul is the same as our that his grace is sufficient for us and that it is the refiner's work it is the refiner's work on us this gets back to a lot of things we've talked about with accepting and understanding the sovereign works of god we don't know why don't know why these things have to happen Don't know why these things in many cases are going the way they are. And we can't see the end game, which frustrates us the most. And that's why if we could just see that X problem was going to bring about this just grand and glorious result, man, wouldn't that be fabulous? And we'd all sign up for it. Probably not. I mean, we can all look at workout plans coming up on the New Year's and see, hey, you could look like this, but you got to do this. And we go, I think I'll stick with how I am. You know, we'll use some verse like, you know, God made me the way I am and this is how beautiful I am. And, you know, I, I don't have to get out there and work out. So the idea, though, is that we have to we, we have to suffer. We have to. In fact, it's the most common link that we have with each other, but also the most common link that we have with Christ. That in his sufferings, we endure the same things he endured. 
And then on the reverse of that, he endured the same things we endure. So we can rejoice in that connection that we have with him and also rejoice in the hope that he gave us through it. That he says, yes, you're going to suffer, but be of good cheer because I have overcome this wicked, horrible, suffering world. And one day we all will. So may God bless us to think on these things.